Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Kim Waller, Senior Client Partner, North America DE&I Leader, and Golnaz Yekrengyung, Senior Client Partner, North America Head of Infrastructure and Energy Investing at Corn Ferry. Corn Ferry is a global consulting firm focused on designing optimal organization structures that help motivate workforce while also helping professional development and advancement in their respective careers. So today we are going to talk about the energy workforce, what that means in terms of DE&I, energy transition, and kind of what the future of energy looks like, specifically from that workforce perspective. So let's get into this conversation. Kim Golnas, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your backgrounds, and then a quick introduction to Corn Ferry and your role within the company. Sure. Who would you like to go first? Go ahead, Kim. All right. Um, So, Joe, great to be here. Um, My background um, is in uh, organizational change and impact. I started my career as a labor economist. And so the intersection of the two gives me um, a line of sight on how organizations transition to create optimal performance um, and how they think about the emerging trends with respect to their workforce through the lens of DEI. Um, I am the North America leader for our DEI practice. And again, the, the, the nice um, compliment to both is that that is our firm's position on how do we help organizations really transform, uh, both perform and transform through the lens of DNI. And Golnaz. Thanks, Kim and, and Joe. Um, Golnaz Yekrangian, I lead the infrastructure and energy investing practice for Corn Ferry in North, in North America. My background is uh, I'm a telecom engineer turned investment banker turned executive search consultant. Um, and Corn Ferry is one of the largest global leadership consulting um, businesses in the world. We um, have uh, significant um, infrastructure expertise globally in different sectors. And we're pleased to be here to talk about DNI in this sector. Great. Thank you both for your introduction and and this conversation that we're about to have. This is a little bit different than what we normally talk about on the show, so I think it'll be a a, a fun conversation and definitely an enlightful one for me. So right now, as we talk about energy, we have a number of high-priority topics in the energy industry, and those will directly impact how we accelerate energy transition and how we do that in an equitable and just way. So specifically, I'd like to talk to you two first about talent and talent retention and how we do that in a using diversity, equity, inclusion, how we look at all of that and how we look at that with the lens of transitioning transitioning energy or increasing the the energy landscape and diversifying it both with the talent and with the energy resources we have. So to start off, I would like to lay some groundwork understanding what is the current state of the workforce in the energy transition. And I guess that's a very broad topic. So I, I'm sure you have answers and I'm going to let you take that broad question as it is. Gonez, you want to start? Get, get us kicked sure. off? So energy is at a 
really interesting point in its development. We have energy transition as it relates to traditional energy companies transitioning their businesses into more low carbon businesses globally. We also have new technology, new high growth energy companies that are coming to be to help us um, achieve our net zero goals. And we obviously have a talent shortage with everything that needs to happen to get us to net zero from an energy perspective. And when you look at the current talent that is sitting in the industry, not surprising to anybody, uh, we are still low on diversity. But the good news here is that diversity and inclusion is not top of mind for shareholders, for boards, for investors, for leadership teams, and for the, most importantly, for the workforce who are going to join these companies and enable our transition. Kim, I'll pass it on to you. Yeah, no, thank you. And and so pulling on the thread of talent, you know, what are the different expectations of talent today as we think about what what is the future of of, of meeting the challenges of the energy sector. What are the, what is this talent of today looking for? And it's different than if we were to have this conversation 50 years ago, expectations for talent would probably be more traditional, right? I'm going to get a job. I'm going to do, um, and, and my goal is to perform for that company, perhaps have a long-term um, career with that company. What we know from our research now is uh, talent today are looking for new different things. They're looking for a more individualistic kind of relationship uh, with their with their employer um, as they even as they think about industries that they're going to enter into. There are a number of different ways of working now. As we know, um, past COVID, the notion that I'm going to get a job and go into the office and be there, that's no longer. So hybrid working um, is is important to new talent as well as what we know is talent today, whether they themselves on dimensions of diversity are diverse or not, they're looking for organizations that have an inclusive environment and inclusive culture. So the mix of all of that together, uh, along with finding ways to attract talent into the energy sector are some of the, some of the challenges that the, that the sector is now facing and how, do, how does the sector transform um, given these new um, expectations of talent. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting point that it, it, and I think whenever we go into an interview as far as getting a job, that is always that, that conversation that it's not necessarily just the employer interviewing the employee or potential employee, that talent should also be interviewing the company to see if it is a company that is that they want to work with and that they are are excited to work with. Yeah, I, you know, I'll I'll follow on that. Um, what we have found, and again, our research has showed that purpose alignment with purpose, the purpose of the industry, the purpose of the of the company of the individual company, is is a heavy driver, more of a driver than you might expect, or we would have seen again 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, talent of today, not all, but there's a good portion of talent today that are making decisions because they have, top talent has multiple um, choices. So they're looking at not only the standard role and compensation, but is this organization aligned with my values, my purpose, et cetera? Um, I I will share with you a story. I um, know of a young woman who was working for a traditional energy sector um, company and had even, you know, the traditional, we bring in interns in their, in their junior and senior year. She did that with this particular company. Um, they extended an offer post-graduation. Uh, she accepted the offer. And then six weeks before she was supposed to start, had done self-reflection and said, this organization isn't aligned with my values. And without having another job, declined the offer which is shocking, right? Because I come from an era where there's no way I would decline an offer without having another one. Um, but 
again, that whole value purpose alignment um, is important. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone would do what this young lady did, but it is certainly um, something for the sector to, to be aware of that values and purpose mean a lot. That's very, that's another interesting point. And I'd like to dig into that, that this idea of purpose driven, because you hear that a lot right now about about the the current workforce and the younger workforce coming in that they care more about purpose and feeling like they are adding value to to the greater society through their work. And I want to look at that from the lens of energy because in anywhere across energy, any type of energy you're producing, your draw your job is to help produce energy. And we all need energy. So I think for for the industry, the energy industry, I'm sure that everybody says we're producing energy. That is, we're producing this stuff that you need. Isn't that purpose enough? And I guess this is a bit of a loaded question, but I, I would like to hear that that almost, uh, I would say that's almost a, a simplistic viewpoint of it. So I'd like for you to add a little bit more flavor to it. Yeah, so um, I would say that um, Unfortunately, Joe, um, I think some of the younger people coming into the industry might not have the big picture and they may take a big brush at traditional global oil companies and say, I don't want to work in, in oil and gas, for example. So I think what we need to do and what we'd recommend our clients to do, and I think most of these uh, global majors are doing that, is to clearly communicate how they're going to transition their business. What is their plan? What is the role of somebody who is even in the traditional energy business as it relates to energy transition and getting the world to a place that we can be better positioned from a you know um, net zero perspective. So I think there's a bit of an education requirement uh, or better communication to get the message out in terms of what these companies are doing to actually transform themselves and what is their role in getting the world to um, a better place. Yeah, I, I, I would agree, Gonez. And one of the things that I recently um, learned and, and heard very clearly is that it's it's not one or the other, right? That what I what I and Joe um, please weigh in, but what I understand is that traditional oil and gas or or, or energy is really fueling and, and financing the work that's being done in energy transition. So one couldn't live without the other at this point. Um, And to Golnaz's point, it's how do you create that broader message and understanding of the intersection between the two and that whether you're in traditional and or uh, renewables of sort, that that you are contributing to that overall um, goal to to create um, positive um, impact within the environment. Yeah, I... I agree. I think when when you look at any type of public companies, investor reports, you'll notice the ones that are that that I know from the geothermal industry or from the podcast and people that I get to talk to companies that are either investing in smaller renewable energy or energy transition companies or ones that have a new energies arm that is a relatively small portion yet these and and for most of those sections they are they are coming from the larger incumbent energy and and really where all the profits are and where we have had had historic profits for the past few years all of that is getting reinvested into new energy and into sustaining energy for the future so yeah, you're you're exactly right, and I I do think that that's something that is part of this narrative that that is not being shared because that is it. I think you put it very well when you say that right now there is this symbiotic relationship, but it's also almost through uh, blinders that the only people who actually see the the need 
for both are, are the people that are higher up that are looking at the whole picture that really understand that the oil is funding the renewables and the renewables are the path for the future for the oil. It's a, yeah. So, so this is, this is what, what you do. How do you help companies understand that and, and communicate that, especially when they're trying to bring in top talent? Yeah. So the work that we do from a, from a, a DNI perspective, and I don't know if we want to go that narrow yet, um, but it, it's really around um, helping organizations understand what their employee value proposition is and really getting crisp on it um, versus just relying on, again, that uh, we're a large organization, uh, we're a market leader, we make a lot of money. That no longer is enough. So we work with organizations to, to think, to first understand what is their current talent saying? What's the feedback that we're receiving from new talent and the success and or opportunities for improvement in, in, in the value proposition that they provide to um, their talent acquisition strategies? And then we help them craft something um, that, that really is targeted towards the um, type of talent that they're looking for, as well as even understanding what is their footprint within the market, right? What's their brand? Not what they say. But externally, what is their brand? What is um, the external market saying about their brand? And really um, doing the work to create, again, a, a value proposition, a purpose-driven value proposition that resonates with talent. Yeah, I think Kim covered it very well from a recruitment perspective. We are almost the marketing arm of our clients, and therefore it is on us to tell their story appropriately in the market, make sure that uh, everybody knows, all the candidates we touch know what the opportunity is, what the culture is, what the purpose is of these organizations. And then the same time we have the responsibility to tell our clients what the talent's perception of them is and how they're perceived in the market so that they can take action uh, if they need to. Okay. Now, I do have a, a question and I will I'll keep it broad. Feel free to talk about a specific case study if you can or want. But I'm curious, is there a situation or an example that you can think of where the company's external brand, what what the market saw them as was not really what they wanted to be or what they what they were? in terms of, of how they were actually approaching DE&I and energy transition and, and being this forward-looking company. And, and if the market wasn't seeing them right, how did they go about, how could a company go about starting to fix that and do it in a, in a real tangible way specifically focused on building a good company, not necessarily on changing their image? I would say that for any company in any sector, um, this can can happen in the market. And the first thing to do is to acknowledge where the market perception is coming from um, and then also then educate the market as to what actions have been taken to address some of the market perception. Because if you think about it, market perception comes from a place of experience. Um, so I think the best way of handling is to acknowledge, address, and then describe how one has, what, what steps have been taken, what changes have been made, and where that company is on their journey. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I absolutely, and and even further, you know, we'll do a, a, an assessment, if you will, or a diagnostic, um, both in terms of what's happening externally as well as what's happening internally. Because to Golnaz's point, um, that external brand perception sometimes comes from an external event, if you will, that's, that's very public, and how that organization addresses whatever that public event um, is relative to their brand is important. There's one thing 
to address it from the perspective of customers. There's a whole other thing to address it in terms of what does that mean as they think about attracting talent to the organization. So we help organizations through our communication and change practice do that work, um, as well as you know what oftentimes the biggest advertisement for who you are are your employees, those that are currently there and those that leave. And so we do work with organizations um, to understand the voice of the of the talent that exists, as well as the voice of the talent that has left. Sometimes that voice of the talent that has left, um, less attention is paid to it. I would say that it, it almost should be the reverse with respect to uh, brand and reputation, because it's those people that have left that are going to be out on the market saying either amazing, positive things about the organization and the industry and or, and or the reverse. And in some cases, we know there's some organizations within the industry that have had high turnover. An old school thought process around turnover would be, ah, we can get some more. <laughs> we can get some more talent. Uh, we can get some more talent. But each time there's high turnover, each person that's coming out, um, is 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 a um, challenge to the the reputation of the organization that having a way to process that and reevaluate and reposition. Um, I think Gomez said acknowledge um, um, and then um, act act on that is really important to or to an organization to really be able to manage um, their reputation and their value proposition. I completely hear you there and. And that is a very interesting point that you make that the with the turnover, all of those all of those past employees are now essentially their own little um, reviews of the company, whether positive or negative. And that is going to then spread further. And I think right now with the with the average turnover rate of employees, and I think it's it's more, it's less now where you will have at, on average, I think it's two to five years at a company. And, and I'm sure you know that better than I do. So you'll have more of this opportunity for past employees who know your organization and will have opinions, even if those opinions are 10 years old. And I, I could see how that could end up being a I want to say risk. I don't know if risk is the right word, but that could be a risk to your company. Absolutely. I, I was thinking of the word risk as well when I was speaking, but I was like trying to move around it. Um, but and when you think about it, old school, something happened internally and externally. You went to legal. You might go to corporate relations. They might craft a statement. And that would be that. There's now with social media, multiple channels for people to express their opinion, right or wrong, non-edited, can go viral, either written and or video in multiple ways that corporate communications and legal can't control it. So it's really, how do you create a, a, a culture uh, and a culture, I'll say a culture of inclusion, a culture that recognizes the importance of your talent um, in a way so that there's organic positive momentum in the market around your your brand, your company, and the industry. All right. So I do want to talk about the what you're saying there, the building up the the internal culture and culture of inclusion. What are some what are some ways that that's being done in terms of are there workforce initiatives or or is it primarily public statements trying to bring in the right talent or or is, I guess how how are companies going about really really tackling this beyond making that we're going to be net zero by 2050 statement or we have these goals in mind for DEI because I think we see a lot of that and we've seen a lot of that recently for what the company looks like internally as far as a workforce and what the company will look like externally as a carbon emitter. But I don't know what is really being done. And I'm, I'm curious how much of that can really be talked about and 
how much of that should be getting publicized as well? Um, I think that this is a multi-pronged strategy for most of our clients in terms of recruitment, development, and retention. Um, and it is a multi-year journey for everybody currently. This is not a, I'm going to hire five diverse candidates at my leadership team and I'm done kind of thing. You need to really address it at all levels. Think about how you bring people in at senior level, mid-level, junior level, how you grow them, how you develop them. Um, and I think that traditionally when people brought in uh, diverse talent, their view was, oh, I have one other diverse talent in this other area of my company, so I'm going to connect the two of them and um, that will provide mentorship. And that is, you know, as Kim referred to before, like old school way of integrating um, diverse talent. Um, what we've seen most successful is to be giving this talent that you hire real opportunity, real sponsorship um, from the business, whoever that may be, whether diverse or not, leaders but to allow them to gain the experience you require so that they could become your leaders of, of tomorrow. Kim, do you wanna to add to that? Yeah, no, absolutely, I totally agree. And, and you know, one of the things that we know is any sustainable change within an organization starts with leadership. And so, you know, what we see organizations that are effective and, and are getting positive momentum, it is, it, it is more than just a statement on a website. It is more than just a blurb or, or a video reel that you've done to say how wonderful you are. It is, are your leaders driving and creating a culture of inclusion? And the culture of inclusion includes, do you give, is, is there actually uh, the fulfillment of the promise of equality and equity? Does everyone have a fair shot at ascending within the organization? Um, does a, is has a speak up culture where all voices, all thoughts, best thoughts um, are not only um, encouraged, but is there a, a forum, a way for best thoughts, best talent to be able to contribute to um, the organization? One of the things that we know from research around diversity and inclusion is that when optimized, you get best thoughts, best talents, different perspectives, different backgrounds, all put together and activated to create solutions and ways of doing business that optimizes the performance of the organization. But just because you have diversity in the organization, if it's not driven and led by inclusive leaders, then you just have people there, but you're not getting the the benefits, the, the maximum benefits of having that diversity, diversity of thought, et cetera, within the organization. So I would say that it, starting with leaders, leaders and equipping leaders on how to lead differently. Again, my <laughs> the old school, new school, I oftentimes say to myself, and, and when I when we do work with senior leaders, some of this, if I'm a leader that 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 really came of age 20, 30, 40 years ago, this is a shift. It's a shock. It's a shift. It's like, what are you talking about? I gave them their work assignment. I gave them their desk and their computer or whatever tools that they needed. Do your work. Not all this other stuff around. I need to understand the person as an individual. I need to understand their motivators. I need to understand their values. I need to understand how do I create a safe space for them. I need to under create a speak up culture. That's all new, right? I need to be empathetic. I need to be able to be open to differences. That's new. So how do we, but it is, it is the new paradigm for leaders to be optimal leaders as inclusive leaders um, to lead forward in the future. So how do we support leaders and help leaders to get to that place where that muscle has been um, built so that they can effectively lead and perform within the organization? I wanted to add one more uh, point and that is that the boards of these companies are also incredibly important. And what we are seeing, at least in the infrastructure and energy investment world, is that there is significant attention now on this topic of having diversity at the board level. 
Um, and that is a very, very good news because it starts at the very top. It starts at the board of these companies and then it goes all the way down. And we are um, very happy to see that um, that having diversity at these boards that are owned by these large pools of capital is a mandate and that it is measured and that it is very carefully followed. Uh, so we, we are very happy to see that trend. I think that's that's great news. That's very exciting. I wonder, though, because traditionally the board has not been diverse, and even today the 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 executive level of kind of across the board of of industries is still not as diverse as as you would want. So, does that make it difficult? And does that make it difficult to create a diverse board? And then how is that being addressed in terms of making a diverse board of directors so that we can be bringing in all of these great insights and diverse thinking and creative, thoughtful, inclusive yeah, leadership well, that Kim was pointing we, out? We uh, are asked often to look at the board matrix. Obviously the board matrix um, defines what skill sets you need at the board. At the end of the day, you're running a business, you are accountable to shareholders, your investors. Um, and so you need to have um, the skill sets that are required on the board. But the truth is that there's plenty of diverse talent out there that are qualified for boards. And there are now ways for companies to get their talents to be ready for boards. So there are programs where companies can allow their leaders um, to um, diverse and not to get themselves ready for, for boards so that when they're ready, they start taking board uh, assignments and appointments. Um, I think the only way, it's obviously a multi-year journey but the only way to make it happen is to get started. Um, and believe me, there are enough diverse candidates who are highly qualified out there to, to get started with. Yeah, I'll build on that. Um, uh, a significant number of, of just across all industry board placements over the last two to three years have been diverse. And so even the next uh, goal is to, once you have diversity on the board, maybe one or two, right, um, to start, what do you do with that, the diversity on that board? Um, and again, how do you learn as a board to make decisions more inclusively? I'll go back to the same thing that we talked about in terms of how do you create a, a, a speak up culture where at the board, true ideas, true, true, true issues um, are debated and you hear multiple voices, not just two or three that are tr the tr traditional standard board voices that have held that position of power for years. I mean, so that's some of the work, the emerging work, for example, that Coin Ferry is doing is what does it mean to be an inclusive board? What does it mean to, to effectively onboard talent on or, or leaders onto a board? Uh, because that's new space, all of this space around diversity on, on boards intentionality around diversity on boards is relatively new, um, but it's important. That's not going away. So it's important to understand what does it mean to uh, lead uh, a board effectively, um, given the diversity of the voices um, at the board level. Hmm. I like that. I like the intentionality aspect and, and that kind of goes back to everything that you were, you were saying, Kim and, and Golnaz about, the idea of diversity for diversity doesn't ultimately drive anything of value. It, but where the the real value comes from is is recognizing and and using and celebrating that diversity and the diversity of thought and and the innovation and creativity and forward. Movement that can and be I developed. I think some from of the that. metrics we can share is that more than 50% of our board placements um, in North America were diverse. So there is definitely an effort uh, by the corporates and by investors, institutional investors, to move companies um, 
forward in that direction. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, I go to the leader that may say, you know what, I had diversity mm-hmm. on my team, whether it's at the board level or on my respective team within the, within the um, corporation. And, and it was a headache. Well, yeah, because it requires different ways of leading, right? The, the, being able to absorb and embrace new perspectives requires that there be a culture where that's embraced and that there's a way to do it. Um, again, what our research says is diversity on a team not led well is going to have a negative impact um, because there's going to be conflict. There are going to be different voices. Diversity on a team not well managed, right? There's almost three different buckets. One type of team that, that has diversity on it, um, where it's not well managed, you don't get the voices of the diversity, the different perspectives. And so you might as well, it, it, the, the diversity on the team norms to the majority, right? So it kind of washes it out. The other is that the diversity on the team not well managed, the team tears itself apart because of the differences, right? There's all kinds of conflict and the team is is has this level of conflict and toxicity that serves to have that team underperform. However, for the teams where they are really managed well and you get through the noise and you hear all the voices and there's a way that you do your you do the business at hand, it's those teams that are outperforming um, um, homogeneous teams. So again, it goes back to leadership. Do you have a way? for leaders, leaders to lead inclusively at all levels, from the top, at the board level, all the way down to mid and frontline leaders. It's transforming that organization so that that organization knows how to lead differently. And those tenets around leading differently um, are just best practices around leadership. So just being able to have average or mediocre leaders no longer works for all of the reasons that we've already described. Yeah. Now, I, I think we we've kind of talked about this and and we'll we'll be rehashing what you were just saying, Kim. But I want to make sure that this point is clear because I, I think it's important. What I'm hearing you say is that leadership needs to have the opportunity to lead well. Employees need to be open to this goal of of inclusive and diverse thinking and using that and and then shareholders or the board and kind of the people who the company itself is answering to they have to also be saying we want this we want the diversity in place we want to see a company that is ultimately helping everybody i guess is that is that the right way of thinking about it. And in that it does still, I mean, isn't there somebody in power? Like, isn't somebody actually in control? I guess that's the other question is who really has that power? Is it the shareholders? Yeah, the employees, well, I think the that the shareholders have significant power over this topic and the leadership the same and individual employees also have their own part to play. So, I think in an ideal world, you need all these three different constituents play the appropriate part. It can't be that just one is asking for this or understands the benefit of, of having a diverse point of view. Um, and that comes with probably uh, training and education and uh, policy um, policies that are HR policies, maybe. So it, it is a multi-dimensional um, topic, and obviously the leadership team and the board have significant power, but it has to trickle down to to everybody. Yeah, I agree. I think that it is it is a shared responsibility, almost like three um, legs of a stool. You could, you conceivably could try to balance a little bit with two, um, only two and not the third, but it's not going to be strong and sustainable. So there's a shared responsibility in all three of those, those, those entities or, um, those pieces of the puzzle being fit together, um, in order for this to, to really uh, make a positive impact. Yeah. 
They're right. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely see that and, and really having it, it, it's almost a, a good kind of way to, to tie the bow. The fact that we're talking about everybody within the, in the organization and company and stakeholders in the organization saying, we want this, which is the way that we can include everybody, not only in the responsibility of driving change and driving the, the future of the company to have this net positive impact, but also the, the responsibility and the, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? the opportunity to contribute. Well, with that, I think that's a good transitioning point into my final questions. These are the questions that I ask all my guests. I want both of you to be answering them. The first one is, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Goldman, I was let's thinking have you go about first. this question, Joe. And look, um, my favorite book is not about the energy industry. Is that okay? <laughs> Yeah, that's totally fine. <laughs> so I like the fiction books written by Louise Penny, who's a Canadian author, and it's about a detective. It comes out once a year, and I wait for to to read it. If you haven't read it, it's it's uh, very endearing. So maybe start with the first one. <laughs> what's the What's the title uh, of the first one? I will one have so to I can email find that it. to you. <laughs> it's been a while since I read the first one. I'm not okay. on number. I don't know, 15 or something. What's the, uh, the, author what's the series is Louise called again? Penny. It's a Canadian author. Okay. I'm sure I can find it with that. Yeah, I love Kim, everything. Kim, what about you? Um, that Malcolm Gladwell has, has, has written. And so I'm a big fan of Blink. And as I think about the work that he um, the, the information that he has in that book, it's really around how do we think, how do we process, um, how do we make decisions, um, and that there is this body of knowledge that we all bring, um, um, and that if we, it, it's how do we share and contribute um, thoughts um, to in a creative way to make a positive impact. Let me know if you need a more serious book. No, no, that's great. I think... For me, I I actually prefer yeah. reading fiction now because I I just I am always reading technical information. So when I do pick up a fiction book, it's yeah. usually done within a week. Whereas any other book yeah. takes me months to read, just because it's like okay, I've I've got enough here. Now I'm getting information overload. I'm ready to move on, and it's. Even if it's something that I like to read, that's like more of a historical, I, I like to read yeah. like historical travel. So if it's a, um, now I'm going to blank on his name, but those kind of books, even those are, are pretty much yeah. a lot of information. So even those, I can only read about one, yeah. one chapter at a time. Yeah, I find that I, I, I'm skimming the so, non-fictions these days to the parts that have our interest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of lots of information overload now to, yes. nowadays. And and I don't know if it's it's better or worse, the fact that you can go and just find a one-hour webinar. And, and for me, I will listen and watch almost everything at two speed. So I feel like I'm getting more value from it mm -hmm. because I can watch it so quickly. And then trying to read a book, like open it, flip through the pages. I'm like, okay, I'm, I am so slow. This is... <laughs> This feels like almost a waste of time. All right. Now, the next question is, when will we be mm. net zero as a society? <laughs> Kim, oh, let's so have you answer this one first. Um, this is not, this is my, my aspirational um, uh, deadline or whatever. I would say in 20, 25 years. All right. 
I Gomez, think that uh, the official numbers are 2050, uh, which 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 is similar to what Kim outlined. I think it, it's a tough question to answer because this is really a global um, effort, and the developed world and the developing world, we all have to move the same direction and share responsibility for getting us there. Obviously, the hope is that we we do get there. Um, for our children and their children and the next generations. Um, so, uh, and I think that directionally, at least globally, there is alignment on this topic. So hopefully we'll get there faster. Yeah. And I do like the point that you made that it is a, it's, it's a global problem or a global initiative, if you will. And one of the the very important parts there is that industry is going to play a role across the board. The industrial sector is, is where or the commercial sector is where a lot of the change will ultimately need to occur in order to hit these targets. And they're either going to be regulated into making that change or it is going to be initiatives by individual companies that will push us forward. I think that's that's my my take on it and where that value. I agree. I think this is like a a topic that is a topic of policy. But at the end of the day, business has to rally behind it and industry has to push it forward. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, the last question is you actually get to ask me a question. So what is your favorite book? (laughs) Ah, what is my favorite book? Um, I will, I usually answer with my most recent book because it, it, I don't know if I have one except for the book that I am reading at that time. And I, so I was just in Houston for a conference and on the way down, I was listening to the, the, a book in the hunger game series, the, the ballad of songbirds mm-hmm. and snakes, I think is the name of it by Susan Collins. It, I think it, when I read fiction books, it is usually something in sci-fi or dystopian and I don't know if that is like more inspiration to say, let's not get, let's not get to that point. Let's keep pushing forward and looking at people as inherently good and keep striving for it in ultimate, ultimate positive goal. Maybe that's why I gravitate towards those dystopian books. But from that perspective, I thought it was very interesting from a character development and and just the whole idea, I'm still baffled that that the idea of something like the Hunger Games is just is is insane to me. How could we ever get to that point? But it Yeah, I don't know. So the Hunger Games themselves, crazy. But I think we should we should all read them and and then critically think about them from a, not just from an entertainment perspective. Did I get enjoyment from it? But then also, like, could this actually become the world? Is that a world I want? And what can I do to help us? I love that. I love the your statement around um, your belief that people that that people are inherently good and that there's an opportunity to uh, make a positive impact. I guess my question is, um, do you have a perspective on what one thing would help to accelerate change within the industry? If there's one thing, if you, if the genie said you got one thing that you can do to change, what would it be? That is a, a tough question because one thing, one thing is, is hard. Um, and I will, I'm going to be broad on this and say, collaborate. I think that 
collaboration is the is the thing that that ultimately can can move mountains and move projects forward i think that that in a broad sense can bring in this diverse diverse thinking and you can start seeing solutions and seeing how two or three different companies with two or three different mindsets or typical ways of doing things can ultimately find a better solution by all working together and having that diversity of thought. And I think that right now, because this is a, the, the idea of, of producing a better society and a decarbonized world, that is a global problem that includes the developed nations, developing nations, startups, incumbent energy industry, large, large tech industry. It, it includes everybody. This is something that everybody is dealing with. And I don't think any one person is going to have the solution, but it is going to require collaboration and, and common goals and interests that, that utilize creative solutions. So if that were, if I were to try and summarize all of that into one word, it would be collaboration and I guess pushing it forward. Yeah. <laughs> well, Golnaz, Kim, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before yes. we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like you to say? Thank you for the invitation. Really enjoyed getting to know you. <laughs> No, this has been really a, a really um, insightful conversation, and thank you for inviting us. Well, Golnes Kim, thank you again, and thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy related related stories. We have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link for that will be in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.